Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Good evening, church. It's a joy to be here preaching again. We carry on from last week, part two of our series in Corinthians. Last week we did 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 to 9. This week, chapter 1, verse 10 to 17. Is Christ divided? We're going to start from verse 1 just for the sake of context. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then today's section, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Thus far, the word of the Lord, let us pray. Lord, once again, on my mind that prayer that we pray so often before we eat, Lord, bless this food to our bodies. I pray, bless your word to our souls. May we find encouragement. May we find conviction. May we find Christ. In this, your word. 
in your name, amen. Just as a means of introduction, what does, what does a good church look like to you? Just pick your, pick your mind for a bit. What does a good church look like to you? Most of us, if you're older than 18, you have been through the process of looking for a church. What did that process look like for you? I know there's some people here tonight. They ended up here because they Googled Baptist Church Pretoria. And that, that's wonderful. I'm glad you're here. But other than Baptist being in the name of the church, what do you look for in the church? I know for others, for others, the process looked a bit different. You probably visited a number of churches and considered things like worship or genre of worship or what century the songs were written in or the sermon, perhaps the style of preaching, maybe how much they referenced or did not reference the Bible. And then there's that indescribable quality, that warmth that we look for in community. It remains an indescribable quality, but if the church serves filter coffee rather than rick coffee, then that indescribable quality mysteriously just grows inside of us. What does a good church look like to you? Beyond first impressions, what are your expectations of church? You've been here a month, six months, a year, five years, 20 years perhaps. I see you, Om Eugene. <laughs> what are your expectations of church? The people sitting next to you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, do their lives matter to you? Does their sin matter to you? Does it matter to you that no one from the church has ever been in your home? Does it matter if the pastor has ever talked to you? Or better yet, does it matter if the pastor remembers your name? Or maybe you prefer it that he doesn't talk to you and doesn't remember your name, and you prefer it that no one visits you. Church people should stay at church. You'll see them on Sundays, but your house is your house. There's no sukasa here, it's just mikasa, full stop. <laughs> what are your expectations of the local body of Christ? I thought that was a good, a good place to start because I want you to consider the reality, the reality of this Corinthian church. Consider the reality of walking into this church for the first time as a visitor. Continue the reality of perhaps even being a member of this church. How long would you last in this church? In this church full of drunkards and the sexually immoral? Consider the reality of sitting down for a meal with your brothers and sisters in Christ in celebration of the Lord's Supper, communion, and some get drunk. Some get drunk on the wine that's supposed to represent the blood of Christ. And some who are poorer in the church, they go hungry because others were greedy with what is supposed to represent the body of Christ. How long would you last? 
this church that needs to be reminded that a man cannot sleep with his father's wife. They needed that reminder. A church where you walk in and the person at the door says, if you want to make it in this church, if you want to be a real Christian, you better follow Pastor Isaac. All those other pastors, they're going to lead you astray. They just preach from time to time. But if you want to be a real Christian, you must follow this guy. Honestly, I don't think I would last five minutes in this church. Me, a 21st century Christian with my evangelical, reformed, Baptist, all those good things, Calvinistic, Calvinist (laughs) theology, all all of that, I, I wouldn't last five minutes in this church. But here's the interesting thing. Paul doesn't say to them, leave the church. He tells them to unite. Now, don't get me wrong. There are good reasons for us Christians to avoid certain churches. And I have personally had the unfortunate experience of being in that space where I felt I had to leave a church that I was a part of at that time. And God can work through those situations too. I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. But I want you to consider this evening this chaotic Corinthian church Paul greets them, and first he reminds them of the faithfulness of God. But his first instruction to them is this. Unite. He begs them to unite. Which brings us to my first point tonight, unite, which is found in verse 10 and 11. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. As we look at these two verses, I want us to consider what Isaac went through last week. Keep these things in your mind. This is the backdrop of Paul begging the Corinthian, the Corinthian church to be unified. To the church of God that is in Corinth, verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That word, that word you, it is given to us nine times in our English translation, just in those few verses, nine times. And each time it is translated from the plural. You, a group of different individuals, you with all your issues, you are the church. You make up the body of Christ. You, plural, as the local body, you were the recipient of God's grace that was given to you through Jesus Christ. 
You, plural, you as the local body, it is among you that the testimony of Christ was confirmed. It is in the local body, in the plurality of Christians, that you are not lacking in any gift. You, plural, you are the subject of God's faithfulness. He will sustain you, the local body, till the end. So before saying a word about unity, Paul has already painted this picture of the church. And while I was preparing this, I was reminded of that expression, there's no I in team, there's no I in church either. This plurality of believers, this is God's chosen instrument to testify Christ to a broken world. Therefore, Unite. My first subpoint, 1.1, unite by the name of Christ. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Isaac made the comment last week that Christ is referenced in every single verse in the top section. So when we find this here, I appeal to you, I beg you, by the name of Christ, it is not just an expression. Unfortunately, that's the reality of the movies we watch today. You are lucky to make it through a movie that doesn't use our Lord's name in vain. So one of the definitions for Jesus Christ in the Cambridge Dictionary is an expression of surprise, shock, or anger. But this isn't an expression. Paul is begging, pleading, by the name of Jesus Christ. Again, look back at last week's section. By the name of him who by the will of God died on the cross for your sins. By the name of him who made you recipients of God's grace. By the name of him who was testified about among you. By the name of him who you eagerly await. He is your husband, you are his bride. By his name, Paul pleads with them, unite. 1.1, unite by the name of Christ. 1.2, unite for the sake of unanimity. Verse 10 again, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. That word agree, a more literal translation would say, speak the same thing. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, speak the same thing. And then later in the verse, be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Unity is not a uniform that we put on. It is not looking the same. It is not even speaking the same language. It is not unity for the sake of unity. You can have an amazing group of friends and you can all speak the same language and all enjoy the same movies and you can live happily ever after and that's wonderful. But if you are not unified in Christ, in Christ crucified, then you'll be unified in his judgment. The unity that Paul is speaking of here 
is for the sake of the gospel. This does not mean that that the church is drained of individuals. We are still made up of individuals. We will still all support different soccer teams, and that's fine. But when it comes to the gospel, there can be none of this. There can be none of this, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow whoever, none of that. I was baptized by Paul, none of that. Later, later on in this chapter, Paul says, I preach Christ, Christ crucified. If you do not speak the same thing about that cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God dying for our sins, then there is a problem. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love for one another, not for the sake of just loving one another, but for the sake of proclaiming in unanimity that we, the Church of Christ, belong to him. We are his bride. My second point, from verse 12, we find this issue of fan clubs that have developed in the church. But before we consider these different fan clubs, different factions, a brief note. In this text, it appears that these are fan clubs for the fans, but also, importantly, by the fans. There is no indication that Paul or Paulus or Cephas encouraged or instigated these factions in any way. It appears that these factions developed of their own accord out of the members of the church. Now let us briefly consider these factions one by one. The first one is Paul, and notice he starts with himself. From the get-go, he's trying to communicate his impartiality, even to the group that wants to use his name as their banner. His interaction with the Corinthians church is found in Acts 18, verse 1 to 11, and I'll read it just for the sake of context. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people." And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So we ask this question, why would 
a faction develop in this church that seeks to claim Paul as their leader. Paul, in his missionary capacity, started this church in Corinth. Perhaps they witnessed the blood, the sweat, the tears that Paul shed in the city over one and a half years. Perhaps they saw his love for God and the church and the people firsthand. And perhaps they thought to themselves, this man, this man Paul, he is worth following. The second faction is that that belongs to Apollos. Again, Acts chapter 18, later in the chapter, verse 24 to 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. In scripture, we can find no fault in Apollos, but these people in the Corinthians church thought he would be a good man to follow. Why? He was the new flavor of the month. Clearly a gifted man, probably younger than Paul, an eloquent speaker. He just had this way of words. When he speaks, it sounds a lot like what Paul would say, but better. He's just such a dynamic leader. He has this indescribable zeal and energy that just makes me want to follow him. The third party is Cephas. Cephas, Peter the Apostle. Now, biblically, interestingly enough, we're not even sure if Peter ever visited this church in Corinth. If he did, if he did, Perhaps this faction was born during his time there. But in reality, Peter didn't even have to visit them. Peter the apostle would have been a well-known figure in the early church, even from a distance. And it is not a stretch to think that some people in this Corinthian church decided it was a good idea to associate themselves with the name of Peter, even having never met him. Who is Paul? Yes, he claims to be an apostle, and maybe he helped found this church, but is he one of the original 12? Did he spend three years being personally discipled by Jesus? Who is Apollos? Clearly he is gifted. Maybe he has an eloquence with words, but was he there at Pentecost when Peter preached and 3,000 came to faith? Paul and Apollos are relatively cool, but Peter, Peter's the OG. If you really want your fan club to thrive, just get behind a person who's not there to speak for themselves. Church factions thrive under the lack of accountability. But there's also a fourth faction. This fourth faction is that which claims to follow Christ. They have the name right, but not much else. 
we are faced with this terrible irony in which in their self-righteousness, in their smugness, they say, we are better than the rest of them. We follow Christ. They take on the name of Christ, but they are content with division. They would use the gospel not as a means to unite, but as a means to divide. They use it to pat themselves on the back. This faction comes to church to listen to the pastor preaching. But rather than listening for the gospel, and when they hear the gospel, they say to themselves, Aha! The gospel, amen! That's what I believe in. We are in agreement. Rather than that, they come and they sit, and they wait and they listen. They listen not for the truth, but they listen for something to disagree with so that they can say, aha, you are wrong, I am right. What about that verse in Revelation that says, one, two, three? It is a terrible thing to be puffed up to the degree that you think you are superior to your brothers in Christ. My third point, as we move on, we are faced with three rhetorical questions from verse 13, three rhetorical questions. There is a wonderful hint of sarcasm as Paul asks these three questions. They are rhetorical in every sense of the word rhetorical, and they reek of ridiculousness. The answer of each one of them is an emphatic no. They reek of immaturity. If these questions need to be asked in a church, we cannot defend that church. It is a Christian tragedy, it is a gospel tragedy that these questions had to be asked. Paul says as as much later in 1 Corinthians, we're still in chapter 1, he's still got some tact and gentleness to his words. He doesn't want to chow them too hard too early on. And he actually wants them to finish reading the letter. But consider these words from chapter 3. He's addressing the same issue he's addressing here. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still in the flesh. For while, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. 
Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul calls them infants. It is infantile to look at the man in the pulpit and raise him above the message of Christ that he proclaims. It is infantile to use our preferences as an excuse to divide the body of Christ. Each of these questions, each of them, it is a tragedy. Is Christ divided? No, he is not. For us professing Christians, for us to look at the church and think we have the right to divide it based on our preferences, that is a tragedy. It is a tragedy to miss the truth of Scripture that this local body is a testimony of God's grace and is also an instrument of his grace unto the world. And you want to divide it. Is Christ divided? No, he is not. Was Paul crucified for you? Again, this is a ridiculous question. Does it even need to be asked? Does it need to be said that your pastor did not die for your sins? Does it need to be said that when your pastor dies, he will not rise again on the third day? His death will achieve nothing. It can save no soul. He will face his creator just like you and I. If he preached Christ crucified, there's a good chance he will go to heaven. If he preached any other gospel, there's a good chance he's going to hell. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. No one, not Paul, not Apollos, not Peter, not your pastor, There is only one, Christ crucified. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Does the name of Paul mean anything? Do you think it is worth something? Do you think it's worth something something to be baptized into the service of Paul? Do you think that is a life worth living? Or do you think that's worth dying for? For Paul? For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. You want to exchange that to be baptized into Paul. That is foolishness. So we have the unity that Paul begs of them. He begged the church to be unified in the gospel. We have all these different fan clubs or factions, we have these rhetorical questions. But let us consider finally verses 14 to 17. Consider the example that Paul sets for us in these verses. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Again, Paul uses himself as the example so that there can be no confusion. 
He is not trying to eliminate other parties just so his, just so his party can gain followers. He rejoices in that those he baptized are few in number. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent, eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Consider this definition of personal branding. Personal branding is a conscious and intentional effort to create an influence public perception of an individual by positioning them as an authority in their industry, elevating their credibility and differentiating themselves from the competition to ultimately advance their career, increase their circle of influence, and have a larger impact. Paul was terrible at personal branding. He was not a stupid man. He wrote most of the New Testament. He had ample diction, ample ability to debate and argue and use logic. But he leaves his personal brand to the side. It's not about me. It's about Christ. It's not about how many people I baptize. It's not about how many people want to follow me. Don't follow me. Follow Christ. I was driving around today doing stuff and I saw this car in front of me and it had this bumper sticker with some man's face on it and then there was a verse next to it. I think it was Psalm 91, something about being protected. That's personal branding for you. Or do you think Paul would put his face and number on a bumper sticker? If they had the ability to print t-shirts at the time, I'm pretty sure the church in Corinth would have loved to just print a bunch of t-shirts with Paul's face on it. But Paul, Paul was interested in only one thing, Christ crucified. What about you? Are you advancing your brand or Christ's brand? I've heard Christians speak as they daydream. If I had Elon Musk's trillions, I would tell everyone about Jesus. I would donate a whole bunch of money to all those mission organizations. I would end poverty. I would, etc. <laughs> it's not about Paul. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ. In conclusion, now before we, we walk away from this and we think, these Corinthians were crazy. Before we claim innocence, let us consider how easy and how naturally this can occur. We have our favorite colors. We have our favorite soccer teams. We have our favorite music artists. Most of us prefer either coffee or tea. We have our favorite books, our favorite theologians. We have our favorite preachers who we watch online, the Washers, the Pipers, the Sprouls, the MacArthur's, etc. We have our favorite Bible studies or Bible study leaders. Why, why would we not have a favorite pastor? Jabu is decent. He sometimes says Esau instead of Esau, but you know, it's decent. Isaac with his Brazilian accent, sometimes a little bit distracting. Pastor Mark keeps going on about the gospel, 
and then at the end he keeps dividing us into Christians and non-Christians and I've got nothing on Pastor Charles. <laughs> if, if I had a favorite pastor, it would be favorite. It would be Pastor Charles. Um, but that man behind the pulpit, even if he is preaching the truth of the gospel, because we are fallen and fallible and feel entitled to have preferences, we can so easily miss Christ and replace Christ with that man behind the pulpit. Is it Christ whom you follow? Or have you let the man in the pulpit cloud your view of Christ? I shared in the introduction that there was a time in my life when I found it necessary to leave the local church I was a part of. And I don't, I don't wish that on anyone and Hopefully there's no one here tonight looking for a reason to leave us. But if you are faced with that decision in your life, may it be that you agonize over it. May it be that you prayed for and listened for the gospel. That you listen for that aha moment when you hear the truth, when you hear Christ crucified for the redemption of your sins and in your heart you rejoice because you have heard the testimony of Christ proclaimed in the context of the local body. Because you have heard that which you can say of it as the scripture says, I speak the same thing. The gospel which they proclaim, that's what I believe, may it be. May it not be that you woke up on the wrong side of bed in the morning you got to church and only one person greeted you, but even that one, it wasn't warm enough. The pastor was mayor, he said Esau instead of Esau. You had some tea after the service, it was okay, but the muffins were from Checkers instead of Woolworths. No one came to talk to me afterwards, I just don't feel like I belong. May it not be. This is my challenge to you. Are you looking for the gospel? Are you looking for the things that will bring unity in this church? Or are you trying to use the church to satisfy your fleshly desires? Is Christ divided? It is an emphatic no, he is not. Therefore, let us set aside our differences. Let us set aside our pride, our arrogance, our jealousy, and I appeal to you as I appeal to myself and as Paul appealed to the church in Corinth, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, unite. And as we unite, it is my prayer that our speech and testimony will unanimously declare Christ crucified, Christ risen, that we are an, that we are an imperfect church saved by grace, that we are the body that we, as the body of Christ, we are undivided, held together by the faithfulness of God as we await the return of our Savior. Let us pray. Lord, each of us, we are individuals, And part of that is 
is beautiful. I would have it no other way. I am grateful that there's no one like me in this church. But part of it, mixed with our sinful nature, it it causes our judgment to be clouded. It causes us to look at church and desire of church to satisfy our fleshly desires rather than to look for the gospel. It causes us to have preferences. It causes us to be divided. And I pray by your spirit, Lord, if it be your will, use this word to bring us closer together. May we speak the same thing, Christ crucified. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.